Lord willing, I'd like to be able to uh, perhaps go through chapters 44 and 45 together this evening. Uh, we'll see where we get as far as timeline, but um, we'd like to try and move through both chapters here. It seems in these two chapters, God's really kind of drilling down on this uh, issue of trying to set himself part, uh, apart in his exclusivity as the one true God, and how in light of that, that he deserves our greatest allegiance. He deserves our utmost attention and devotion above and beyond anything or everyone else, and how the people unfortunately would at times regress into idolatry and giving their dedication to other things, and just what tremendous folly that was. It never benefited them. It never brought them any value. It only brought difficulty and disappointment. And again, Certainly, I don't think any one of us probably has at home. Maybe you do. I hope not for sure. But uh, in the way that they, we would think of idolatry, have little figurines or little statues or wooden images that we bow down to and that we give names to and say are our gods. But uh, really anything that takes the place of God's importance in our life, anything that becomes our master passion, anything that has supreme uh, allegiance in our life in front of or instead of God is an idol, the Bible would say. Uh, the Bible tells us in 1 John, little children, keep yourself from idols. Uh, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 that even covetousness can be a form of idolatry. Again, even just longing, always wanting something that we don't have, whether that's a possession, a position, a status in life, a relationship, some thing that we're longing for, chasing after it, consumes our pursuit, if you would, or all of our attention. Even those things can be somewhat idolatrous. And the children of Israel certainly had a uh, real issue and challenge at times with idolatry. That, together with neglecting the seven-year uh, Sabbath that they were to respect, as God told them to, was ultimately what led the southern kingdom into captivity into Babylon, which really was the land of idols, and God let them there ultimately go ultimately to give them their full of idols, and really it cured them to some degree of their idolatry when God gave them what they wanted. But we'll notice here that God's really trying to drive home this point uh, of who he is and because of who he is, why he deserves our greatest devotion and our full confidence in him, knowing that the future in front of them was not good. We notice he continues to reemphasize these issues of trusting him and not having fear and a lot of repeated refrains that we've seen even in prior chapters. Uh, we pick up repetitiously this evening in what's in front of us. Chapter 44, verse 1, he says, Yet hear now, <clears throat> O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. So once again, we see God using the dual name for the nation of Israel, for the Jewish people. He calls them both Jacob and Israel. Again, remember, Jacob was a reference really more to who they were in their nature, their disposition. Jacob, remember in the Old Testament, he was uh, Yaakov, which means a heel catcher. He was a manipulator. He was a conniver. He was always trying to work an angle to make things come out to his advantage rather than trusting God. He was always striving and trying to make things happen on his own. And then ultimately, God breaks him uh, of that habit in his life, and God wrestles him into submission, 
and ultimately changes his name over to Israel, which means prince of God or one ruled by God or governed by God. And so ultimately God brings him to that place of a name change. But we know Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob becomes one of the third patriarchs and the father of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And so at times God will interchangeably, as we see, use the name sometimes because he's reminding them of their own sinfulness and carnality in who they were like their father Jacob at times. But yet the reality that God in his love and his kindness and his absolute grace chose them and redeemed them and made them a people for himself, not because they were worthy of it, but because God in his grace and kindness selected them and appointed them to such. And that's why he says, Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Again, they became the chosen people of God because that was God's sovereign decision. It wasn't about their merit, their worth, something more special innately about them. It was the fact that this was God's determination. God chose them. And because of that, they are God's chosen people. They are his nation set apart through which he orchestrated his plans spiritually to bring forth the word of God, to bring forth the Messiah, and all of God's plans, even leading up to the return of Jesus Christ and the kingdom age, all directly have connection to the chosen people, the nation of Israel. And God has plans for them which will never go away. The church has not replaced them, and no Arab nation will ever get rid of them. They are God's chosen people. They're his servant. Now, they have not always served his purposes well, and God has deal, dealt with them and will continue to deal with them because of that. But nonetheless, God keeps his covenant plan with them and here once again reminds them that they are the people whom he has chosen, thus says the Lord, verse 2, who made you and formed you, God says, from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you... Jeshurun, which is just a, a term of endearment, we see it one or two times earlier in the Old Testament. It's a phrase that just means my upright one. It's a very endearing term. God used this phrase once or twice to refer to his people. Again, he says, whom I have chosen. So again, would they go through hardships? Would they go through difficulties? Absolutely. Would they ultimately spend 70 years in captivity, in a foreign land, suffering the consequences of their own sinful choices and rebellion against God in different ways. Yes, they would, but nonetheless, God always still had a plan for them. God always has purposes for them, and he reminds them the reason is is because he was the one from the beginning nationally that made them as a nation. He formed them. Notice he says, formed you in the womb. The idea is that God gave birth to this nation. Uh, God gave birth to the nation of Israel specifically, and so he uses this language in a sense of giving birth to the nation, and he says, because I'm the one who made you as a people and gave birth to you and formed you, he says, therefore, I will help you because they belong to God. He would take care of them. They were his children, and like a parental love, a fatherly love, he says, I'm not going to abandon you. He says, I gave birth to your life, and therefore I am going to help you. And, you know, we look at these verses honestly, and to some degree, though it speaks of Israel nationally, the same thing to a degree applies to all of our lives. All of our lives are precious, they're important, they're significant 
in God's eyes. Every human life has value. It doesn't matter what the origin of that life is. Every human life has value. Psalm 139 tells us that God literally knits us together in our mother's womb, that all of our days are written in a book, that God alone knows the length of that book, every page of that book, every different chapter of that book, right? And some chapters have these situations, some chapters have these situations, some chapters are, are good and enjoyable, some chapters are really difficult chapters, and the reality is, is that God knows every aspect of our life from the beginning. He's always known us. He made you. The Bible tells us he creates us, knits us together, even forms us in the womb of our mother. And that's just not our physical frame, but even just our idiosyncrasies, our personalities, our temperaments, our aptitudes, all of those things. God has perfectly knit those things into our life. And, and the, the psalmist says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, and I know that full well. And what a wonderful thing to realize that this incredible creator God designed our bodies, designed everything about us, made us, formed us, and he knows our bodies perfectly. Every element, every cell, every aspect of our body that God knows it all well, and because of that, he says, I will help you. However that pertains to what unfolds in your life, he says, you can guarantee on one thing, I will be there with you, I will help you, and therefore, because he says, I will help you, he says, therefore, to his people, fear not. You don't have to fear, because God says, you won't be abandoned and alone, I will help you, and therefore, that is the assurance to kind of subdue the fear that God's help will be with us in our lives. Verse 3, he goes on to say, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. And I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. And they will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. So God here promises, notice, that he would satisfy the thirst and the need, no doubt God did this in a literal sense, poured water on him who is thirsty, as Israel at times, both coming out of the Exodus, as they were traveling through the wilderness, and then when they come back from Babylon, as they're returning back from the captivity and making, in a sense, a secondary Exodus, traveling through a long wilderness journey, going back to the land of Israel to go back and rebuild and restore Jerusalem and the temple there, that God would satisfy their thirst for them. But here, certainly, the prophet as well is speaking just in a metaphorical sense of this promised outpouring of God's Spirit upon the lives of his people, and he describes it in an illustrative way by equating it to like pouring out water upon one who is thirsty and bringing floods of water upon dry and parched ground to bring refreshment and to bring renewal. You know, when we go to the New Testament, in John chapter 4, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, there he equates the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, there to a reference of like satisfying thirst and bringing refreshment and renewal and the idea of the work of the Spirit to quench the thirst of the woman there at the Samaritan well. And then also in John chapter 7, Jesus once again there equates the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a very similar way to satisfying thirst, bringing refreshment. John chapter 7 tells us that Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, 
Let him come unto me and drink, and out of his innermost being shall gush forth torrents, rivers of living water. And then John adds the commentary, this spake he of the Spirit, that he was describing this ministry of the Spirit of God and how he, the Spirit of God, satisfies thirst when he is poured out upon our lives and he satisfies the, the spiritual thirst that's in all of our lives. So uh, the prophet here predicting how there will be an outpouring of the Spirit of God upon the lives of his people, upon his descendants and his offspring, God's promise, I will pour out my Spirit on you and my blessing upon you. And Joel chapter 2 very similarly says, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, we know in a partial sense, this happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, at the birth of the church, where Jesus told them to tarry in Jerusalem and to wait for the promise of the Father of being baptized with the Holy Spirit, as John had spoken that Christ would do, that when Jesus ascended, that the Father would bring forth that promise and they were to tarry there. And we see a part of that, part of Joel chapter 2, and I say part of it because I think it was the beginning of something that would continue to carry on of the Lord doing this, that they were to be expectant of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and which took place there in Acts chapter 2 and really began a time period where the Spirit of God would continually be poured out upon his people and all the more through the work of Christ. And, and so again, these are things that we should recognize that God is saying that he would do for his nation Israel. He did it there in Acts chapter two for even those Jewish converts, those new believers that were there. But even as time unfolds, this is even something Zechariah describes in chapter 12, that there's coming a time where at the return of Christ, that God will also pour out a spirit in a fresh way, a spirit of grace and supplication upon the nation of Israel. And it says, they will look upon me whom they've pierced. And so there are many times throughout the word of God where it's described that the spirit of the Lord would be poured out upon his people. And you and I, certainly though not the descendants of Israel, we are the spiritual descendants of Abraham, if you were, the descendants of faith and being saved and made righteous by faith. And, and God was willing to and does pour out his spirit upon our lives as well. And we should be expectant of such. We should ask for such. Jesus speaks about the importance of experiencing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he's not talking about in you, upon you, just as it says here, it's pouring out the spirit on your descendants. He doesn't say in your descendants. Notice the language, on your descendants. This is describing the spirit of the Lord coming upon or on the life of God's people to empower them, to refresh them, to satisfy thirst, to bring a renewal, if you would, a, a reviving work like renewing parched ground, like causing a thirsty person to be satisfied and refreshed and to bring forth a change and a transition because of the power of the Spirit coming upon one's life. Now, personally, I have it underlined in my Bible here, and I love the very fact that he says there, I will pour out my Spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. 
you know, as a, a father now of adult children, remarried daughters, son-in-laws, and now getting grandchildren as well, I love the idea of that. I, and I take that as a promise from the Lord for my life personally, that the Lord has already began to show me the beauty of how he's poured out his spirit on my own descendants, on my own offspring. And to, to claim that for myself as a promise, Lord, absolutely, yes, that's what I want. Lord, I don't care what they do. I don't care how, what, they, you know, what kind of job they had. Lord, that's what I want right there. <laughs> I just want you to pour out your spirit upon my descendants and upon my offspring. And what a joy it is to see the Lord doing that, to see them now as adult children, walking with Jesus, coming to church because they want to, not just because they have to, <laughs> because dad makes us come on Sundays and Wednesdays, or dad's the pastor, so I guess we got to go. You know, that doesn't exist anymore. They're married now. They're not even under my leadership anymore. They're under the leadership of my son-in-laws now. But, but because the Spirit of the Lord is upon them, they now themselves are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. They're wanting to walk with the Lord. It's beautiful to see the Spirit of the Lord upon their life and the blessing that they are to me and to my wife now. And not only seeing them walk with Jesus, but even seeing them serve Jesus and getting to see the blessing of them serving the Lord and, and actually doing ministry in the different avenues that God has given them all, giftings in the ways that they serve the Lord. Such a wonderful thing. I love how he says, I will pour out my spirit and my blessing, verse 3. Take notice that. Pouring out of the Spirit of God, and he, God says, and my blessing. I think that's an important connection there because I think God is reminding us to a degree that God's blessing is always connected to the experiential work of the Holy Spirit. He says, I will pour out my Spirit and my blessing. I will pour out my Spirit and my blessing. Oh, God, we want your blessing. God, bring your blessing. Bring your blessing upon my life, Lord. Bring your blessing upon my marriage. Bring your blessing upon my family. Bring your blessing upon my, my labors, my efforts. Bring your blessing upon the church, Lord. Bring your blessing upon my ministry. And God says, I'll pour out my spirit, and my blessing will accompany the outpouring of my spirit. That's what we should be asking for. Lord, pour out your spirit and he says, and I do that, and my blessing then will follow after that, because he says, verse 4, illustrating that, they will spring up among the grass. Again, it was dry, parched ground, but now things are springing up. Notice there's life, there's blossoming forth of growth like willows by the water courses. So when God's spirit was poured out like water poured out on dry ground, notice what it did there. It, it, it in a sense, brought forth this growth, and it brought forth this flourishing blessing where things blossomed and thrived, and that is the byproduct of the work of God's Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives life. He brings things to fruition. Verse 5, and one will say, and this is still connected to the outpouring of the Spirit, the, another result, one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. So notice, verse 5 describes how the work of the Spirit will give to God's people who've experienced the outpouring of the Spirit upon them. It gives to them, we might see here, sort of a, a heart of dedication. 
where when the Spirit of the Lord is poured out, the byproduct is those who experience the outpouring of the Spirit, they're not wanting to identify with this. They're not wanting to hide their identity spiritually. Oh, I don't want to be spiritual. I might not be cool. I need to fit in with my peer group. No, instead, they're all saying, I'm the Lord's. We're the Lord's. We're followers. And there's just this boldness and this increased sense of devotion and dedication where in a very outward, evident, prominent way, you're not having to look upon their life and say, are you saved? Are you walking with Jesus? No, when the Spirit of the Lord came upon the lives of the people, notice it prompted them with a degree of love for the Lord and devotion to the Lord and boldness for the Lord that they were all saying, I'm the Lord's, even writing it out. I belong to the Lord. What's interesting here, the Hebrew where he says there in verse 5, another will write with his hand the Lord's. Some believe the Hebrew literally describes some will write on his hand the Lord's. Oh, is that a spiritual tattoo? <laughs> Don't know. Commentators dispute. Some say it's somebody writing out the Lord's. Some think that verse 5, the language there literally says they will write on their hand, not with their hand, the Lord's. The idea is another way of identifying themselves that even if they don't hear it with my voice, they're going to see it written on my hand. I want everybody to know because the hands are a very prominent place. The other areas of your body often are covered by clothes. But again, wanting to make sure, you know, maybe it was L-O-R-D, you know, right on the, right on the four fingers there. I am the Lord's. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, we saw this a few chapters ago, and the last, and besides me there is no God. So notice, as a nation, a nation needs a ruler, a nation needs a leader, one who governs them, and thus says the Lord, Yahweh, he calls himself now the King of Israel. God wants to be, notice, their king, their ruler. See, this was always the problem and how they got themselves into trouble when they initially asked for Saul to be their king. They always had a king. The Lord was always their king. It was to be a theocracy. Did God raise up leaders and shepherds that would, would listen to the Lord and implement direction? Yes, but the ultimate rulership, the kingship, the rulership of the nation was always to be the Lord but they, of course, like other nations, wanted to be like the other nations. And, of course, they asked for Saul as their first king. And ultimately, that caused a lot, a lot of problems for the nation because, really, they were rejecting God's rulership over their lives. But here, God affirms, I am, he says. I'm the true king of Israel and his redeemer. That's the goel, again, there in the Hebrew, the, the, the kinsman redeemer. Again, as someone would perhaps fall into poverty they times would sell themselves into slavery, as we've talked about before. And someone who was your kinsman, your blood relative, was able to purchase you back out of that slavery and restore your freedom to you. But it had to be a kinsman, a goel. It had to be a close relative. And here, this is the Hebrew term God uses. I am your goel, your redeemer, your kinsman redeemer, the idea is the one who redeems you back from bondage and slavery and restores you back to your original freedom and position. He calls himself the first 
and the last, as we've seen him say before, describing how he spans time and eternity. God's outside of the realm of time. He's the ever-present God. He is the first, and he is the last. doesn't just say he knows what's going to happen first, and he knows what will happen last. God says, I am first. <laughs> I, I am the beginning, he says somewhere else, and I am what's last. I am the end. You know, there's something very encouraging about that. Everything started with God, and everything is going to end with God. <laughs> so if you're right with God, you're going to end up in the right place because you're going to end up looking last of all. The last thing you will see is the face of Jesus. And that's a really good place to finally, after all the stuff you see down on this earth, right? <laughs> that the very last thing you get to see is you look into the face of the Lord. Uh, and what a glorious thing that's going to be to be able to enjoy that forever. And as we said before, Jesus himself uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, there in chapter 1, and then again at the end of the book, calls himself by this same title, the first and the last, uh, reminding us and showing to us the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is Yahweh God. He was Yahweh God in the flesh. That's why he claims it here. God says it, and then Jesus takes the same title to himself because he was God in the flesh. Besides me, he says, there is no God. In other words, there's no alternatives there are no copies of God. There is only one God. And who can proclaim as I do? God says the exclusivity. No one can do the things that God does. No one can proclaim things before they happen. Only God can do that because he's timeless. He's outside of the realm of time that we're all stuck in. Everything's present to him. Who can proclaim as I do? God says. Then let him declare it. In other words, let me see someone do it. Set it in order. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. So God says one thing that's different is I can do things that other people can't. No one else can do what I can do because God is the eternal God. Notice he says that he is fully aware of both past and present. Only God has the unique ability to know all things, not only have happened, but he knows all things that are going to happen. An hour from now, a day from now, a month from now, a year from now, however long the Lord tarries. You notice he says there in verse 7, the things that are coming shall come. In other words, God's already aware of things that are coming. Now, that to be a consolation to us because we don't know that. Right? We don't know what's happening on the drive home this evening. I hope you all make it home safely. But if that were not something that was going to happen for one of us, God wasn't shocked by that. God always knows what's coming. Not just in tragedies, but in good things. Look, Not just the hardships and the difficulties of life that we can know before we get to that hardship before we confront the circumstance that God already knew it was coming. He had appointed it. He was aware. He was fully conscious that it was coming down the pike. But even more, the good things of our life. That's why we should always be seeking the Lord, because he's the one who knows what's coming. He's the one that's appointed what's coming. If you want to stay on track with what God has ahead that you would be most prepared, realize the things that are coming shall come, but the only one that knows them is God. So the best way to get prepared is to be seeking the Lord. Because as you're seeking the Lord, he knows what's coming. The next opportunity, some relationship that's ahead, some situation, some good things, some next turn in your life. Only God knows those things, but no one else 
can show what's ahead. Again, this makes him exclusive as God. And because he knows everything coming ahead, verse 8, God says, therefore, do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. In other words, your life has purpose, God says. Your life's not aimless. I don't want you to be afraid. I know what's coming. I'm going to help you, he said. I'm going to be with you. I'm reliable. You can trust on me, and you're my witnesses. Everything that's coming in your life is something predetermined. I was aware of it. It hasn't taken me by surprise, and I'm going to use you, God told Israel, as my witnesses to be a testimony through those things. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, he says, there is no other rock. I know not one. What a beautiful picture there of God metaphorically. God, I like that picture, as a rock. The image there is that God is the one like a rock that is strong. He's stable. He's steady. He's immovable. He's reliable. And so this is just in a sense, God's way of saying, look, there is no other rock for stability for your life. But if you are leaning upon me, building upon me, trusting in me, he says, I am like a steady, stable rock that can bring stability to your life, and therefore, it will help diminish your fears. It will keep you from being as afraid Because you can know, I'm not walking on a slippery surface. The bottom's not going to drop out from under me because my life is built on the rock of ages, a steady rock. And so God says, because of that, my reliability should ensure you that you don't have to fear, God says. You don't have to be afraid. Now, verse 9, he begins to go down this path of really pointing out the uh, you know, the, the foolishness of turning to other things for help. He says, those who make an image, idol makers, all of them are useless. They're of no value. Now, I don't know if he's saying they're particularly, the idols are useless. He's going to point that out, so he could mean that, or he could mean those who are making idols. <laughs> they basically make their life useless because they're trusting in something other than God, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Verse 10, he says, Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? So again, God's beginning to build on this line of reasoning, saying this is absolute insanity, God's saying. This is insane. Who would make their own God, their own image, that it profits them nothing. In other words, it cannot help. God's going to say trusting in anything else is completely vain because it will bring ultimately no help in our lives. It will bring no value. It can do nothing in comparison. The idea is in profit to what God can do in our lives. It's so foolish to trust in anything else or anyone else in comparison to the great profit and value of trusting in God, who can do anything for us and is a great helper. Verse 11, he says, Surely all his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. So God's calling for all the idol makers to assemble now. And there were plenty who made idols of gold and silver and wood, as he'll talk about. Yet they shall fear and be ashamed together. Verse 12, he begins with the metal workers. 
These would be those perhaps who not only made idols of metal, but those who made idols of gold, silver, precious stones. These were the ones who made gods for the rich people. They could make gods of things that were more high quality than just stumps of wood. So if he says the blacksmith with tongs, he works in the coals and fashions it with hammers and works it with the strength of his arms. But even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. So he first describes making an idol of any form of metal or stone or whatever it may be the blacksmith molding it, shaping it, and all the effort and the energy that has to be put into shaping this particular material. Now, first of all, would you just please take notice in this situation? In this situation, someone is working really hard to make their own God in their image. Now, something's really sad and depressing when you have to make your own God. I don't want a God that I got to make, and I don't want a God that's going to be made in my image or my likeness. The Bible tells that God's made us, that he's the maker, he's the creator. Here, the idol maker is actually having to create your own God. You got to, and so much effort was put into it because of the hard labor. It says the blacksmith even gets hungry, and then he starts to get tired and thirsty, and his strength fails, and he starts to faint. So he begins to run out of energy. So here, as he's making this God... The making of his God, or you might say in this situation, his God drains his own strength. Now that's pretty backwards. His God drains his strength. My God gives me strength, right? What did Isaiah chapter 40 say? Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Our God gives us strength. Worshiping false gods drains people's strength. It takes from them. It robs them of their own strength. Verse 13, he now kind of goes into what I believe is somewhat of a a humorous uh, rant, sarcasm. This is divine sarcasm at its best to some degree. Let me just read it. Much of it speaks very, very much for itself. And again, I love how God knows how to drive a point home. He would have had a job, but I think it's the Babylon Bee. I think, aren't they one of those uh, people who do the sarcasm thing? I mean, God would have been their best writer if they would have hired him. I mean, we'll just watch this, what he does here. Verse 13, the craftsman stretches out his rule. Again, because you want to make sure you, your God's the right size. Make sure you measure that thing out. He marks out one with the chalk, snap a good chalk line so you don't make your God off balance, fashions it with a plane. He makes it with the compass and makes the figure of a man according to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house. This is an interesting making a God according to the beauty of a man. You know, humanity has never, ever had a time when they were not into self-worship. The worship of self according to the beauty of a man. He cuts down, now watch how this goes, he cuts down cedars for himself, takes the cypress and the oak, these were good, solid, strong woods that wouldn't rot as easy, and then he secures it for himself among the trees of the forest, and he then goes back and plants a pine, and the rain nourishes it. So again, they were, you know, take care of the uh, the, the environment. We're going to make a god, so let's put a new tree in. Make sure we, we worship creation as well. Then it shall be for a man to burn. So he's got a chunk of wood now. He will take some of that wood and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it, He makes a carved image and falls down to it. 
Verse 16, I love the humor here. He burns half of the wood in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. This is good firewood. And then the rest, he makes it into a god, a carved image. And then he falls down before that chunk of wood and he worships it. And he prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Now, the insanity of that, I mean, God's just trying to be completely sarcastic. Here he gets a chunk of wood from the forest. He drags it home. He starts working on it. He chops some of it up, throws it into the fire for firewood, cooks his roast, makes his meal, enjoys some of the heat from the fire from that tree. Then he takes the leftover chunk of wood, fashions it into some image, and then bows down before it and starts praying and saying, you're my God. Save me, deliver me, help me. And again, this is meant to just show the insanity of worshiping other things, the, the, the lunacy of the reasoning of a human mind. That's why the Bible says, the fool says in his heart, no to God. And he's just describing how they would do these very things. Now notice, because they're idol worship and because they had rejected God, he says, they do not know or understand, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see and their heart so that they cannot understand. Notice, it led to spiritual blindness. They were unable to understand things clearly. It distorted their perspective. And whenever someone rejects the truth and rejects God and rejects God's light, it always leads to this byproduct. It leads to a spiritual deception, a spiritual blindness. God says, because they have rejected me, now they don't understand. They don't see clearly. They can't make proper decisions. They've shut their eyes so that they cannot see. They didn't want to see, and now they can see. Their hearts so that they cannot understand. Again, they're, they're blinded, if you would, spiritually. And no one considers in his heart. In other words, nobody takes this to heart. Nobody thinks this through. Nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, wait a minute, verse, 18, verse 19, wait a minute. I burned half of it in the fire. Let me think this through. I threw half a log in the fire, and I baked bread on its coals, and roasted meat and eaten it, and I shall make the rest of it into an abomination, into an idol. In other words, what am I doing? And fall down before a block of wood? <laughs> he says, man doesn't even think about this. Why? Verse 20, here's why. He feeds on ashes that is burnt and worthless things. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver the idea of his own soul, nor say, is there not a lie that I'm grasping, that is grasping a lie in my own hand. The problem, because of the spiritual blindness, verse 20, a deceived heart has turned him aside. When one rejects God, sadly, they put themselves in a position where not only does their mind become blinded, but their heart becomes deceived, and they're not seeing clearly. They're not understanding things properly. Verse 21, God says, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel. You are my servant. I have formed you for my servant. In other words, don't go according to these ways. You have a higher purpose, O Israel. And you will not be forgotten by me. God will never forget his people, no matter what they do. He will continue to be 
faithful to his covenant promise to them. Verse 22, he then says to them, despite their many failures, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. What a beautiful thing to hear after many great failures. And again, sins are errors, missing the mark, trying to fire at a target, but yet missing the mark anyway because everyone's imperfect. Transgressions are willful acts of defiance. Transgressions are consciously, deliberately knowing the truth and just disregarding it in a spirit of rebellion anyway, just defiance. And God says here, both your errors and your mistakes and even your willful acts of defiance against the truth, he says, I am willing to blot those things out, to eradicate them, to cleanse them, to take them away. You know, the imagery here, it's almost like when God talks about blotting out our sins, it's not like God just removes them from the inbox to the trash or the, or the junk mail, and they're still there, and you can go retrieve them. God says, no, I wipe out the hard drive. It's gone. Blot it out. Your sins, your transgressions. How much more for you and I, knowing the assurance of the efficiency of the work of Christ, that the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all sins, that God's blotted out your transgressions. He's blotted out my sins. Therefore, in light of that, God says, return to me, for I've redeemed you. God says, my forgiveness is available. Return to me. Come to me. And then verse 23, sing, O heavens. In other words, rejoice over this wonderful reality. For the Lord has done it. So he calls them to celebrate and worship because of knowing what God had done. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest of every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, he who formed you from the womb, he comes back to the same imagery again, reminding them, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens alone and who spreads abroad the earth by myself. Again, notice, and God did that without anyone's help. You notice he says, I stretched out the heavens, I spread out the earth by myself. In other words, God didn't need anybody's help. <laughs> God didn't need the assistance of anyone. God didn't need a big bang. God spoke it into existence. With his spoken word by his power, he makes all things, and because of his great power, he can do things by himself without any assistance from mankind. That's the power of God, his creative, awesome power, who frustrates the signs of the babblers, drives the diviners mad, who turns wise men backward. The idea is he takes people who think they're so wise and he reveals to them ultimately how utterly foolish they are. God has a way of doing that. He makes their knowledge foolishness. God has a way to show things that we, for many, many years, I mean, even you go back a century or two ago, some of the medical practices we did, some of the things, we, and we thought... In our limited knowledge, these were really good ideas. And then after a while, God showed us ultimately what you thought was good knowledge. That was foolish. That was completely bad ideas. And, and God is a way of at times humbling us and showing us when we think we're wise or we think we have knowledge and understand things, sometimes how 
utterly backwards and foolish our own reasoning and intellect can be. Verse 26, who confirms the word of his servant, performs the counsel of his messengers, so God's able to show his word coming to pass, who says to Jerusalem, now watch what he begins to say here, he says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, who says to Cyrus, notice by name, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, now this would be Cyrus saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now here God is speaking prophetically somewhere between 150 to 200 years in advance of what was going to transpire Again, where when Babylon would come to power, Babylon ultimately, after coming to power and laying siege, would conquer Jerusalem, take captives away into Babylon in 586 BC, and then ultimately, after Babylon conquering Jerusalem and taking the way captive, after that time period, ultimately, the, the Persians, the next world empire, would conquer Babylon. And the massive walls that surrounded Babylon, which had the Euphrates River flowing underneath of its walls, and the Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire, would conquer Babylon in 539 BC. Now, I give you those dates historically because Isaiah is describing these events around 710, 712 BC. So God here, again, the timeless God who's outside of the time continuum, speaks of things that are going to happen when after being stuck in Babylonian captivity for 70 years, God is going under the reign of Cyrus, the Persians, to allow the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem to once again, as he says there, says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited and the cities of Judah, you shall be rebuilt and I will raise up her waste places because when the Babylonians came in, they conquered Jerusalem they, they sacked the city, burned down the walls, broke down things in Jerusalem, and for 70 years were stuck in captivity until the Persians came, conquered the Babylonians, and then it was under the Medo-Persian Empire when Cyrus, mentioned here by name, somewhere around 150 to 170 years before he was born, God mentions him by name that he would be God's instrument, Cyrus would be God's shepherd, a pagan king who would perform God's pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built. He would release them to go back to their homeland and to go back and rebuild the temple and lay the foundations. And what's interesting, verse 27 describes the way that this would happen, that God would say to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Now, here's what's interesting. Daniel chapter 5 describes what was transpiring when the, the Medo-Persian Empire conquered Babylon. It tells us in Daniel chapter 5 that the Persians had surrounded the capital city of Babylon, but the Babylonian king at that time, Belshazzar, was so arrogant and believed that his city was so impregnable that he was having a drunken party and feast inside of his house in the palace using all the implements 
from the temple, the cups and the pitchers, to celebrate his arrogance, thinking there is no way they are going to conquer us, the great Babylon. And Daniel chapter 5 is that passage that tells us that then the handwriting comes on the wall where literally the translation of it was, you have been weighed in the balances and found lacking. And what basically happened outside of the city walls is they were inside thinking they were utterly safe. One of the generals of Cyrus up north actually, we know historically, diverted the Euphrates River, which ran under the walls of the city of Babylon. He diverts the Euphrates River upstream, and because of that, he is able to lower the water level where it ran under the main gate and the walls of these massive city walls that were there. Verse 27 says, who says to the deep, be dry, and I would dry up your rivers. And literally, the Medo-Persians walked right into the city of Babylon as they went underneath the gates of the city because the river was diverted. And again, here's the amazing thing. They were doing all these things just in historical acts of warfare and conquering a city and had no idea that 200 years before, God had said, this is exactly how history is going to unfold. That's exactly how it's going to happen. And more than that, it will be a man named Cyrus, my servant, who actually will be one used by God to do such. Verse 1 of chapter 45, look at some of these verses, kind of carries on with this concept. It says, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors. The idea here is opening the doors to the city of Babylon. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze, no doubt referring to those bronze gates of the city of Babylon. God would open the way for him, cut the bars of iron, and I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know, God wanted Cyrus to know, that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel, for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. Again, 150 to 200 years in advance, God knows that Cyrus will be born. God knows everything that will transpire in Cyrus's life, leading him to the place of being a ruler of the world empire, two empires in advance. Historically, when Isaiah is speaking these things in 700 BC, the Assyrians are still the world empire. Then it would be the Babylonians. The Babylonians would conquer Judah, take them away captive, hold them for 70 years. Then Cyrus and the Persians, two empires later, would come to the forefront in power, and God says all the while, I have walked Cyrus taken him by his right hand. He's my anointed servant. And he says, even though he doesn't even know me, he didn't even know God. It wasn't as if he had the blueprint and he was following. God said, no, I wrote the blueprint. <laughs> He's just living out his life. And God says, I know everything about it. And I'm using all these things to coordinate my purposes. And God said that it wasn't really for his sake. He says, I've called you by your name, and he says, this is for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect. 
I've called you and named you though you have not known me. So God works through the life of this pagan king and God said he did it for his people's sake. Why? Because it's through Cyrus that the people will be released and they'll be able to go back to their homeland. Glance with me if you would just for where we're at here time-wise. Look over at verse 13 just quickly if you could. God says here, again, speaking of Cyrus, and, and we'll come back to these things, but he says, I have raised him up in righteousness. I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free. Not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. Again, God said all these things, God predetermined all these things, worked even through a pagan king that did not know God, did not acknowledge God, did not follow God, but yet God, because he is the true king over everything going on through humanity and upon the globe, can even raise up and use pagan kings and still let what they do, even in their disacknowledgement of God, still ultimately work to bring to pass his purposes and his plans. You know, it's believed, and we can't be dogmatic, but it's believed that Daniel the prophet, some historians say, who was there in Babylon, after Cyrus had done these things, come in, conquered the city, and was able to easily defeat Babylon, that Daniel brought to Cyrus, remember he was a part of the administration there in Persia, he brought to Cyrus the scrolls of Isaiah and showed to Cyrus these documents, these spirit-inspired documents in the word of God that mentioned him by name 200 years before he even was born. And that God knew that he would be born, what his purposes would, what his life accomplishments would be, and how God would work through him in all the ways that he did. And it's believed that that could have been the impetus that stirred the heart of Cyrus to say, you know what? Then apparently God has a purpose for my life and my rulership that's much bigger than what I thought, and that may be the very thing that as he read these things about himself, and he read here, I've raised him up, I will direct his ways, and he shall build my city and let my exiles go free, that that may have been the very thing, the stirring of the word of God, seeing that, being amazed that this God knew about him 200 years before he was born, that perhaps is the reason why we read historically in the book of Ezra. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord came to him by the mouth of Jeremiah to be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation in all his kingdom and put it in writing, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of that place help him with silver and gold and livestock besides freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem." Boy, when God wants something done, 
He knows how to get it done. There may be things that God has wanted done even today that God's been working on in ways that we don't even realize for 200 years of human history for such a time as this. But the reality is because God's outside of time. God's always working. And I tell you, let me land with you on this this evening. If there is one thing that very prophecy of Cyrus indicates to us, it is the fact that every single human life matters to God. 200 years before Cyrus, a world ruler, was born, God knew that he would born. God knew that he'd be a male. God determined that he would be a male, exclusively a male. God determined that his name would be Cyrus, and God knew every life achievement and plan and purpose that he would fulfill, even as a pagan man that didn't even know God. But God knew everything about his life, and it had value and purpose. Boy, that should be a tremendous consolation and encouragement, not only to remember how valuable human lives are, how important they are to God, but how valuable your life is. God doesn't show partiality. God has known about your life way before it came into existence. Everything about it, every part of the journey, and he will help you and guide you because his hand is upon you and he's got the whole book on your life. That's an encouraging thing to be aware of. Let's stand. We'll